Wonderful. That's New Ken Carroll. And I'm sure that New Ken Ron is harmonizing right before the throne. Let's turn to Psalm 22 this morning, please. Pastor Brown started off with a psalm, a beautiful one, one of my favorites. Psalm 100. We are the people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he that has made us. I love that line. Not we ourselves. And our sufficiency today is not of ourselves, but of God, who has made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Always be ready in Romans. The series for the 64th time is Romans the Epistle. For the third time, the theme is the royal motif. The royal motif. If you look at Psalm 45 sometime, you'll see that the psalmist had been gripped, grasped, seized by a theme, he said, which he dedicated to his king. And as always, I dedicate every message to my king, my Lord, my Savior, our Savior, our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we have to go right urgently into this message. Stay tuned for announcements Wednesday. Psalm 22, the royal motif, part three. Dennis, see it. You're surrounded by veterans back there. And you are one. We'll also be going probably to Romans 5 if we have time. Instead of merely enumerating points on this message, which I said I might do last week, I've hidden 12 main points in what I think will be a better free-flowing exposition of this royal theme. It is probably one of the most important keys, the value of which is incalculable. For the interpretation of Romans, our goal is interpretation, that's mine, and with a view to understanding, and that understanding is of the Lord who shows mercy in all the earth. So instead of merely enumerating points on the subject, I'm going to hide those points in a free-flowing kind of exposition of this royal theme. Now, a man who did a tremendous study on the royal psalms. His name was John H. Eaton, E-A-T-O-N. And one thing, a citation of his work that struck me was this phrase, and listen carefully, or this statement. We're going to test the truth of it today. Test it. God's gift of life to his king brings life also to his people. Now that's a statement. We're going to test its metal. We'll test its truth, test its veracity. And I want to do that by beginning with Psalm 22. Now we're going to just ride the high places. We're going to ride the high country, walk on some high places of Psalm 22 as they specifically relate to the king Psalm 23 gets a lot of notoriety. People always revert to it in funeral services and other solemn occasions. But I think Psalm 22 also redounds to the renown of God equally, if not more so, because of the treasured center of it, Christ and him crucified. And I'm going to be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible with comments and accents by yours truly. Starts off in verse 1, for the choir director, a song that was committed to the song leader. And according to a tune which had already been established called the Deer of the Dawn. It's a Davidic psalm, it says, Psalm of David. And it begins in Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now we've shown that Jesus, in speaking about being lifted up on the cross in John 8, 28, he said, when you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am. They will know Yeshua is Yahweh. They will see and know God in his totality in a crucified man, the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate was directed providentially, Pontius Pilate, to place a placard over his head and nail it to the cross, the king of the Jews. And when he was told, please remove it, because that sign, a sign above a criminal's head, was intended to reveal the reason for that criminal's condemnation. And Pilate wanted everyone to know that the reason for his condemnation was his claim to be the king of the Jews. So he said, what I've written, I've written. We've also said when Jesus said in John eight twenty nine, speaking as if from the cross, the father has not left me alone. He has not abandoned me. And what he's trying to get across is though he will cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not because the father forsook him. It is not because the father left him alone. As we've seen in 2 Corinthians 5.19, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When? During the crucifixion, during his death. The Father has not left me alone. I always do those things that please him. The reason for his crying out or quoting this passage is because he was identifying himself indeed as the king of the Jews, as the placard above his head announced, and that he was that royal descendant of David, of all the royal psalms. For when David on his deathbed, his last words were, The spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of the Lord has spoken by me. And his logos word was on my tongue. So David speaks for Messiah and Messiah speaks as the royal descendant of David. He then says, why are you so far from my deliverance? Who's in need of deliverance here? The Lord Jesus Christ, God's king, his God, the king's earthly representative, Messiah king. And from the words of my groaning, my God, he says in verse two, I cry by day. This is a demonstration of his calling out to the father during the day in his crucifixion for the day would turn to night supernaturally and darkness would cover Calvary's cross. So when he speaks of day and night, he's speaking of a concentrated time period in the cross in which he cried to the father. You'll notice here that we have the interpretation of something in Hebrews that I'm going to show you in a moment too. You don't have to turn there, but I'll reference it. Shortly, why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, yet I have no rest. This is the agony of the crucifixion. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. And this is what his mockers say, and this is extremely important. He relies on the Lord, on Yahweh, whom Jesus called my father. He relies on him. Let him rescue him 
Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. Oh, will he? And the Lord delivers him, the king, because he takes pleasure in him. Why do you think the Lord delivered you? Because he took pleasure in his son. You took me from the womb, he says in verse 9, making me secure while at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me because distress is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. Here he is speaking not of mankind. We cannot point to any particular people group and say they crucified the Lord. Because Paul said he was crucified by the princes of this cosmos, a suprahuman principalities. So he says, they open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. And most of you know well that that's the experience of someone nailed to a tree, which is the cross, thrust into the earth and thrust out over the earth. Every bone becomes disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. This is where Jesus cries, I thirst. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and feet. If this doesn't remind us of revelation, I don't know what will. Look, he's coming with clouds, the son of man. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And when every eye sees him, Isaiah 40 and verse 5, quoted in Luke 3, 6, says that all flesh together, all of humankind in all of its times, will experience the salvation of God. Every eye will see him experiencing the salvation of God. All flesh means all creation. Even those who pierced him. We could even say, especially those who pierced him. 1 Corinthians 2.8 again says that the Lord of glory was crucified by the princes of this cosmos. For even the supernatural princes, even the Elohim at the throne of God, who were called gods in Psalm 82, did not know the mystery that Messiah would enter into his universal glory by means of the cross. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You can't point to a specific people group and say, they did it, the Jews did it, the Romans did it. Pilate did it. No way. The princes of the cosmos, suprahuman powers. Now look at Psalm 22. We're only riding some of the high places here. Remember the Lord gave us hind's feet like the feet of a mountain goat that we might ride or walk on the high places. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 19. He says, I may count, I can count all my bones. There's another passage, Psalm 3420, which says not a bone of him was broken. He could count all his bones, means that he felt the pain in all his bones, but it also meant not a bone was broken. He could count them all. None was broken. And that's 
the fulfillment of Exodus 12:46 that the lamb was not to have his any bones broken the sacrificial lamb we are seeing here the lamb of God taking away the sin of the world i can count all my bones people look and stare at me we cannot estimate the depth of the shame the disgrace of the cross They divided my garments among themselves. We know this from the three gospel witnesses. And they cast lots for my clothing. Exactly what the Roman soldiers did. But you, Lord, Yahweh, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Now remember, he's crying this with great strong crying and tears at this moment in the culmination of the days of his flesh. Come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my very life from the power of the dog, all metaphors for death. For the absolute death, he was dying for sins. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Please notice, help me, deliver my life, save me. Who is saying this? If not the royal descendant of David, the king of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it true then that God's gift of life to his king, will he give that gift to his king? And is it true, moreover, that if he does, the king brings life to his people as a result? If these can be answered in the affirmative, we have probably the most profound interpretive tool for the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Right in the middle of this verse, 22-21, is the resurrection of the royal son of God. You say, I don't see it, nor did the princes of this age see it, nor did the cosmic elements see it, nor did sin with a capital S or death or the principalities and powers that rule this present evil darkness. Neither did they see the resurrection here hidden in the words of the prophets, which God has now commanded. The eternal God has commanded that the mystery be unveiled in the writings of the prophets. Here's the resurrection right here. You have rescued me. What happened between save me and you have rescued me? I think Paul has it when he says in Romans 4.25, he was handed over for our sins, paradidomi. And resurrected for our justification, which is really a backward view at the cross. He was handed over for our sins, which is our justification. And he was raised from the dead as the act of justifying, which is life. Justification is not a legal imputation of righteousness so that you go around helplessly sinning and then having to confess it 60,000 times a day. Justification is the gift of the life of Jesus Christ that came forth with him from the grave. Therefore, by Romans 5.1, a hint. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, not ours, his. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the apocalypse. Apocalypse doesn't mean unveiling. That's weak and pathetic. Apocalypse does not mean unveiling. That is a weak and pathetic. It means invasion. It means an invasive break-in of a revelation of God's mercy right in the midst of religion, right in the midst of pseudo-piety, right in the midst of people touting their virtues and comparing themselves with others and coming out on the better end of the stick. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
Because in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. And do you know what that means? It's revealed by God's faithfulness to his son's faithfulness to justify his son. Who gets justified? Jesus does in Romans 3.26, in Romans 6.7. The one who died, Jesus, gets justified. And the one who died is Jesus Christ. The one who was justified is Jesus Christ. And in Romans 5.18, I think you might read that that justification of life comes to all mankind without exception, all humanity in all of its times without exception. Religion makes its exceptions. Preachers make their exceptions. Evangelists make their excuses. Revivalists speak of the fear of God's wrath. The Bible speaks of God's love, unconditional. His uncontingent grace that has no contingency in man. His unrestricted love. His mercy toward all. Now, that message gets a similar reaction from the cosmos and the princes of this cosmos and their devotees today. Look at what he says here. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers, my siblings, And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. Because he, by the grace of God, tasted death for every single person. In order to bring many sons into glory. And that many means all of humankind, as we've seen by comparing Matthew 20, 28, Mark 15, 25, with 1 Timothy 2, 6. And 1 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He is the propitiation, the righteous one. He is the righteous one. My righteous one will live by his faithfulness, says God. The righteous one is none other than Jesus Christ. He lives in resurrection because of his faithfulness and obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. You are saved by Jesus Christ's obedience. You are justified by Jesus Christ's faithfulness. You are rewarded, if you want to use that term slightly facetiously, with eternal life because it was the reward that the Father gave to his Son. He shut up all in disobedience, as Pastor Brown's prayer eloquently put it, In order to have mercy on all. How could he have mercy on all if he shut up everybody in disobedience? Through the obedience of one. Jesus Christ the righteous one. He's the one spoken of. As the righteous one. In Romans 1.17. 1 Peter 3.18. He died the righteous one for all the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Who's us? All the unrighteous. If while we were still sinners. God sent his son to die, if while we were still his enemies, he reconciled us, if he reconciled us while we were still enemies, how much more now will we be saved by his resurrection life, which is his gift to all his people? We're testing the metal of a question, of a statement, of a statement. God's gift of life to his king brings life also to his people. Is it so? I will proclaim your name. To my brothers, I will praise you in the congregation. And this may easily be compared to our passage in Romans 15, 9, in which Psalm 18, 49 is quoted. The great congregation he's speaking of here is the biggest congregation that ever congregated. It's Gentiles, it's Jews. It's Gentiles and Jews. It is all people in all times, gathered together by a feat of God, an act of God called bodily resurrection. They all join in praise to him. As Romans 14, 9 says, he, Jesus, died and came to life in order that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. 
And we're going to see this pan out right in this psalm. I'm not quite done with it. And then he, Paul interprets, every knee will bow to me, every tongue acknowledge. Paul says, every tongue will sing praise to me. That means that every tongue will have been so transformed and so transfigured by resurrection that no matter how the hideousness of their evil was demonstrated in their lives in the flesh, they will praise me, says God. Every tongue will praise me. That's not God hitting the back of the knees of his enemies so they're forced to bow. So then he throws them into a dungeon of hell and delights in their torment forever and ever, which is a horrible, blasphemous depiction of God who is love. Every knee genuflex in adoration. Every tongue sings praise to me. And guess who leads that song? Guess who leads that chorus of praise? The true sweet psalmist of Israel, Jesus himself. Watch this. It says, as he continues, in other words, this great congregation, both the living and the dead, all people of all times. And have we, we've discovered this, that in, Psalm, in the Psalms, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as David was called, is really the title of Jesus himself. He himself leads a universal chorus of praise for deliverance, for he himself was delivered, and when he was delivered as the second Adam, so was everyone in Adam without exception. That's the gospel. I'm not ashamed. The righteousness of God is revealed in it from his faithfulness to his faithfulness, from God's faithfulness to the faithfulness of his son by which I am justified and you are justified. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or detested the torment of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried for help. This is the royal sufferer par excellence. This is Jesus, the royal descendant of David, Romans 1.3, according to the flesh, who was declared with dramatic power to be God's own divine son, and that means his earthly representative king, his divine and human son, by resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4. You know the verse, perhaps you've already alluded to it in your own mind, where it says he listened when he cried to him for help. You know the verse, don't you? I'll translate it for you from the Greek. It's Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh. In there means at the culmination of, the culminating point of, the days of his flesh. He, who... Jesus, who is also called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in 5.6 of Hebrews. I'm reading 5.7. And this same one who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek is also the one to whom God said three verses earlier in Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footrest for your feet. In the culmination of the days of his flesh, he offered up entreaties. Same word used in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four: Entreaties, a calling out for help. Entreaties, deasis is the word in the Hebrew, in the Greek, deasis. He offered up entreaties and supplications with what? Loud crying and tears to the one his father, that is, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. He was listened to. His petitions, his entreaties, his strong crying and tears for deliverance. 
was heard. And he was heard because of his devotion to God. His devotion to God, otherwise known as, or also known as, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. What was he obeying? He was obeying his father. He was obeying his father's will. What is his father's will? That all people would be saved and come to the extraordinary knowledge of the truth. He was obedient to the Father's will to save all mankind. And he was obedient even to the extent of the indescribably reproachful and disgraceful and mocking death of the cross. And so God also highly exalted him. Did he? I think he did. He's the man he lifted up on high. But our question still remains. Does he give life? To his people. This Hebrews 5 7 is a direct allusion to Psalm 22 24, where the Greek version uses the same word for entreaty. And again, that's the Greek word. You can see it right in the text. It's actually the Septuagint is Psalm 21 25, not to be confused. D E E. S-I-S, that's an epsilon, that's an eta, the accent is here, deasis, same word used, Psalm 22, 24, LXX, 21, 25, and Hebrews 5, 7. At the culmination of the days of his flesh, he cried out to God with loud, strong crying and tears. Deliver me, save me, don't be far from me, help me, deliver me from the lion's mouth. He rescued me. Now, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-five: I will give praise in the great congregation because of you, Father. Guess who's the song leader in the universal chorus? Jesus. Why? Because when he was delivered, all the human race was delivered. In that one day when God has brought all his enemies under his feet, the last one is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, the most far-reaching eschatological passage in the entire Bible, say nothing of just Paul's epistles, ends up with the son having everything under his feet but then turning and submitting himself to the Father with all of the creation in all of its times and all of the enemies having been annihilated, death being annihilated, the rest being subordinated. And he gives it to the Father so that God may be all in all. As the Father was pleased to dwell in his Son, in him I am well pleased. Colossians 1.19, to dwell, to reside. The one who's pleased to reside in his son is still pleased to reside in his son as his son recapitulates all things in himself. So the father then is just as pleased to dwell in you and to dwell in me and to dwell in all humankind and to dwell in all the redeemed creation. We still live in an unredeemed world. Church services that are all about triumph, but nothing about trouble, don't understand the age in which we are finding ourselves today. We're at the juncture of two ages. We're at a clash and a great conflict of two ages. And God has to fit us with a new kind of lenses called bifocals, in which we see the evil age passing away. The darkness is even now passing away. And the age that came with the invasion of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit just beginning it's inaugurated it's not yet fully developed know what time it is Romans 11 you know what time it is it's high time to awake from sleep because the night is far spent the old age it's still around but it's far spent and the dawn is dawning the day is dawning so put off all these works of darkness And put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for that supernatural 
enemy called the flesh, which isn't your lower nature, but a supra-human actor in the war of the apocalyptic eschaton. All of these truths will be fanned out. Please notice this, though. I will give praise in the great congregation because of you. This is compared with Psalm 1849, which Paul cites at the end of Romans. Remember, he opens with a royal motif. Jesus, the royal descendant of David and the son of God, Romans 1, 1 to 4. But he also closes the main body of the epistle with a reference to Jesus as the king in Romans 15, 7 through 12. The one in whom the Gentiles or all the nations will hope. A quote of Isaiah 11.10. And so, I will give praise. This is Jesus speaking, or David speaking, but with the mouth of Messiah through the Holy Spirit. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Please notice verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. That's all humanity in all of its times. For kingship. There's your royal theme. Kingship, royalty, belongs to you. Royalty, kingship, belongs to you. And then it says, He rules over the nations. But notice what it says then, verse 29. All who prosper on earth. You know what that is? It is a phrase for the living that are walking on top of this planet. Walking on the surface of the earth. Prosperity doesn't mean they're rich. It means they prosper because they draw breath. They're alive. They're the living. What does it say here? All who prosper on earth. That's the living. He both died and came alive to be what? The Lord of the living and the dead. But what about the dead? Well, the, all who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. That means they're going to receive the resurrection without seeing death and bow down in adoration of Jesus Christ, proclaiming Yahweh to be Yeshua. To the glory of the Father. Why to the glory of the Father? Because once that universal genuflection and universal praise and universal acknowledgement of Yeshua as Yahweh, Jesus then turns to lead a chorus of the whole universe. Everything that has breath, Psalm 150 calls it, everything that has breath, that's not just humanity. That's all every living creature that ever lived, including your pets. sing praise to him. That's something that seems to be missing. We know that every knee will bow. We know that every tongue will confess. We know that all flesh together will experience the salvation of the Lord. But we miss something that happens right then. When the son turns to his father in praise, he leads the whole universe in a hallelujah chorus. That'll make Handel's Messiah sound like a funeral dirge. By comparison. Then God is all in all. And then God truly is enthroned on the praises of his people. Now, we're riding the high places of Psalm 22. All those who go down to the dust. Those are the dead. In case you don't know it. You want to call it a polite metaphor, you can. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. How can they do that? 
They're dead. It's a little thing we like to call resurrection. And it doesn't say only the believing, only the reverent, only the virtuous. I was sold on a novelist this past week. Her name is Flannery O'Connor. She was a southern novelist. And I was sold on her by J. Lewis Martin, who described her literature. She writes with almost totally grotesque characters. The characters are grotesque. There's one of the characters is a Bible salesman running around the countryside looking only for girls with wooden legs. That's weird. But she presents all these grotesque characters and they said, one person wrote her and says, wrote her mother and said, can't you tell your daughter there's some nice people in the world? Because her characters were all that way. She writes of one character who was very grateful and she used some very bad language that I won't use. But she looked at the whites and the blacks in her region and she said, I'm glad I'm not like them and them. But she later on has a kind of revelation where she sees all people, all those grotesque people in her mind that she judged. She sees them all rumbling in one massive stampede into heaven singing praises to God. And then she gets caught up in it. And you know what burns off while she's ascending? All her virtues. All her supposed virtues burn off until she joins that chorus that's rumbling, she said, toward the enthroned God with joyful praises and gratitude for an unspeakable grace. And she couldn't even join the chorus of the so-called grotesque until her virtues were consumed. Now that's a, I, I don't know if I should recommend her because maybe she's pretty raw in her writing, but her name is Flannery O'Connor, and I think the book that she wrote had the title Revelation in it, but there's some pretty bad language in it, apparently, but she was a Catholic, so I'm sure she went to confession, so, but anyways, She got it. And what J. Lewis Martin said, who to me is the pioneer of apocalyptic theology in the 21st century, and he's gone now. He died in 2015. To me, I accept his words pretty clearly. I've tested them like I'm testing this word today with the word. So if he recommends... Flannery O'Connor as one of the only novelists who understands apocalyptic thinking. I might read her sometime if I got time. (laughs) That's never going to be, but let's continue and see if this truth is true. See if this statement is true. Those who bow down to the dust will kneel before him. And look at what the last phrase says in this verse. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. That's the one they're kneeling to. The one who can't preserve his life is a reference back to three synoptic gospels in which, while he was being crucified, they said he saved others. He can't save himself. The psalmist says here, the one who can't save himself is the one to whom they will all be kneeling in adoration. He couldn't save himself. He relied on God to save him. And when God saved him, God saved the human race of whom he was the royal representative. That's why Paul moves into Romans 5. He goes from David and Abraham in verse chapter 4 to Adam. He says, I want you to know how wide this salvation is. Now I'm going to talk not about the children of Abraham. I'm going to talk about the children of Adam. All in Adam, by one man's disobedience, all were brought under condemnation by, so that by one man's obedience, all would be given life-giving justification. Romans 5.18. That's to me, Romans 5.18. You don't get any closer to the heart 
of the heart of the heart of the matter of the gospel. And we're going to turn there in closing. Verse 30, descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. That's the book of Acts. That's Paul's epistles, the next generation. But what about now? They will come and tell a people yet to be born. The epistles tell me today. The Psalms tell me today. When I read Paul, he's telling me I'm that one. You're that one that wasn't yet born. Now we're born. And what does he tell us? He wants to tell us about his righteousness. Whose? God's righteousness. I am not ashamed of the gospel because therein the righteousness of God is invasively Broken in. It's the righteousness of God, which I will speak about all day long, said the psalmist in Psalm 71, 16, 71, 21, and all through 34, all through the Psalms, in fact. It's his righteousness. What is his righteousness? Oh, it's some attribute, untouchable attribute of God. No, it isn't. Look what it says. His righteousness, what he has done. His righteousness is what he has done. What has he done? He has righteously delivered his son, his royal representative on the earth. He has righteously acted to deliver his righteous, faithful son, and we are in him. So, of inestimable significance to the interpretation of Romans and to our understanding is this last phrase. A people yet unborn will hear of his righteousness. What he has done. I told you tetelestai, tetelestai, for the fancy ones here, means a lot more than we thought when I first uttered the word in 1978 here. means a lot more than we thought. The righteousness of God is what is apocalyptically revealed in the gospel, Romans 1.17. And here, the righteousness of God, please get this. The righteousness of God is what he has done by delivering his royal representative from death and with him all his people. Yes, the statement so far is proving to be true. God's gift of life to his king brings life also to his people. So by this brief expose, and we may not get to the next phase because I want to close in a moment. By this brief expose of Psalm 22, and we've only walked on some of its high places. There's so much more there. We may conclude that not only God's gift of life to his earthly king brings life also to his people. We may also go beyond and say that his people are all people. If there is any doubt about it, Paul identifies the same royal son of David as the last Adam in whom all are given life-giving rectification. Moreover, this is corroborated in many places. Was Jesus speaking as a king when he spoke in his last discourse, what we call his farewell discourse? I think we can say he's speaking as a king, as the king. Because in John 19.19, Pilate ordered the placard over his head, king. Was Jesus speaking as God's king when he said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. Because I live, that is, I will live by resurrection, you will live also. If one died for all, Paul said, and he did, then all died See, I came to that conclusion with Paul several years ago, and it transformed my life. It transformed my thinking. It started making me be controlled by the love of Christ for all humankind, not just talk about it, 
but actually have it begin to transform me. As the writer of The Shack, William Paul Young said, if transformation is the renewal of your mind and you've never changed your mind, it's because you're resisting the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that to those who have said, he changed his mind. Well, you know, I'm glad I changed my mind because I used to believe with Jonathan Edwards that God delighted in dangling people over hell like a spider over a fire and loved to drop them in it and was glorified somehow in his justice by tormenting people in an eternal concentration camp that makes the Nazis look like Mary Poppins. I changed my mind about that. Did you? Oh, maybe you're still resisting the Holy Spirit. If you've never changed your mind, well, that's, that's another, we'll get to that in Romans 12.1. But in closing, since one died, then all died. When did they die? When he died. Who's the one who died? Jesus. What happened when he died? He was justified, Romans 6.7. What happened when we died? And when he, was, when he died and was justified, what happened to us? We died and were justified. No one living can be justified, Psalm 143.2. So we died with him, and we were justified with him. And because he lives, we live also. The gospel isn't trying to convince people of this truth. It's just to proclaim this truth, and people will wake up to it by the grace of God. The one Jesus who died... And we showed this, and I'll show it again in Romans 3.26. God justified Jesus. That's what Romans 3.26 says in the best manuscripts and in the Greek text. He justified the one, this one, Jesus, by this one's faithfulness. Where is God's righteousness apocalypsed and revealed? In his faithfulness to his son. To raise him from the dead. But his son is the second Adam. Representing all humankind. He is the single inclusive representative. In which all humankind are found. The one who died was resurrected to life. And he was raised because our justification. Was won by his death. Romans 4.25. And therefore being justified. Not by our believing. God gives faith to you after he gives you life. He doesn't make you believe so that then you can have life. That's not the gospel. His grace is uncontingent. It hits you without any contingency on your part, including believing. And I think we've demonstrated that through Romans, but I'll have to do it again and again because there's some people just don't believe it yet. You haven't had that virtue consumed in you yet. You haven't had that little citadel of your little free will, which you wasn't even free until God liberated it through the gospel. So let's just jump to it. Romans 5.17. Let's look at where royal motif meets with life for the king's people and see if it's not. Let's just see who his people are. I'm going to read it real quickly and we will close. Romans 5, 17. For if by the trespass of the one, that's Adam, the first man, death reigned. Guess what that word is? It's the nomenclature. It's the word, the verb of our royal motif. Death reigned. B-A. S-I-L-E-U-O. Basileuo. Death reigned. If by the trespass of the one, death reigned. That's a royal motif. Death reigned as king through that one man. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, that's unconditional grace, And an uncontingent gift. It's not a gift if something has to be done to receive it, including believe. How much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and gift of righteousness reign as kings in life through the one, Jesus Christ? The one 
who died, Romans 6, 7, is the one Jesus Christ. The one whom God delivered because of his own faithfulness in Romans 3, 26 is Jesus Christ. The one by whose faithfulness you are rectified or justified is the one Jesus Christ. The righteous one in Habakkuk 2.4 referred to in the thesis verse of Romans 1.17. The righteous one will live by his faithfulness. That righteous one is Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. Our propitiation. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's all of humanity in all of its times. Told you that would be a catch word. But look what it says here. Through the one Jesus Christ. So then, Paul says, as through one, the one Adam. Sin, one man's sin, one sin, one sin came condemnation to all people. So through the righteous act of one, what righteous act? His faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion, of the second Adam, came the justification of life, it says. The rectification that consists of life from the dead to those who believe. No. To those who are reverent. No. To those who compare themselves with others and come out on the non-crap end of the stick. No. Their virtue is crap, too. To all people, and that means all without exception, not all kinds of people, leaving some exceptions. That means all people. I think I would have probably resigned from the ministry a few years ago because of weariness. I say sometimes, I'm not 12-hour weary. I'm 40-year weary. Sometimes I feel 40-year ministry weary. But about 10 years ago, if I had not discovered God's mercy for all, I think I would have either resigned or died of weariness. God revived me. He quickened me according to his word. He showed me why I don't need to be ashamed of this gospel, even though many may look upon me as if I should be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Because in this gospel, the righteousness of God to deliver his king by his faithfulness boiled over to me, boiled over to you, boiled over to all mankind. We live at the cross of the ages at a collision point. We suffer in this time, but our sufferings are the sufferings of Christ. And we endure tribulation in this time. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Your king has overcome this world. We thank you, Father, for that reality. We thank you for the reality that is Jesus. We thank you for the mystery of your will which is revealed in the scriptures and in Romans, which climaxes, in fact, the whole epistle of Romans. That mystery, which you have by your eternal command, commanded be revealed in the writings of the prophets, which include the Psalms. And I can't help but reflect upon this today, Father, because what I did today by your kindness is what Jesus did in the road to Emmaus, beginning with the Psalms, beginning with Moses and the Torah and the Psalms and the prophets. He expounded on those things that concern himself. And he said on that road to the slow-witted, slow-to-believe disciples, ought not Christ to have suffered? Christos, the anointed king, should not Are you ignorant of all that the prophets have said, including David the prophet in the Psalms? Ought not the messianic king to have suffered to enter his glory? 
and beginning at Moses. And part of that exposition on that blessed road included the Psalms. We thank you, Father, for the insight and for the light that's already on as we read Romans, for the insights that come from your Psalms. For the sum total of those insights is the one who said, I am the light of the world. And we thank you in his name.